verse 1 this morning. So if you are using one of these Bibles that we provided for you, that'll be page 974. And as we often say, if you're, if you're new to Christianity or if you don't have a Bible that you uh, own at home to read regularly, then we would love for you to take this as a gift from Redemption Hill to you. So uh, please take that on our behalf. And as we open up our copies of God's Word, I want us to consider this, that these are pages of freedom, okay? The, the truth we saw last week is what sets us free. And so what I pray happens, and I pray this happens no matter where you are when you open up God's Word, what I am asking God is that He would allow us to have a confrontation with Him. Okay, so let me just say that again to make sure everyone heard it. When we open the Bible, we are receiving the very words of God that have the capacity to set us free. And so a great way to pray is that God would enable us to have a collision, if you will, with him. And then this collision, there is the power to bring comfort, to give correction, to reveal who he is, that we might then respond appropriately to him. So I'm compelled just to pray one more time and allow you to ask God to open your eyes, and I'm going to ask him to open my eyes and free me up to give you his word. So let's, let's pray together again. Father, we ask that the cry of our hearts in this place today would be simply this, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, by your spirit, that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to behold your glory and your beauty and how compelling it is to follow you, to love you, to experience the freedom that you sent your son to live, die, and rise again that we might know you and love you and worship you with our lives. And so God, I have nothing to give this morning except what you've given to me. We have nothing to receive this morning outside of what you have given us to receive in the, the words of this book that are, that are truth, they're, they're your revelation from your heart to ours. And so, God, we pray that we would not just be here today to kind of be here, it's what we do, Lord, but that the, the cry of the psalmist heart in Psalm 63, that we long for you, we earnestly seek you as if we were in a dry and, and desert land with no water. Lord, we want to we yearn for you like that. And so, God, we pray that you would give us humility, that you would give us grace to receive this word, which is able to save our souls. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Well, as we move to a close in the book of Galatians, 
My hope for us is that we will continue to dive more deeply into the truth of the gospel and understand that it's the gospel that sets us free, not only to come into the life of Christ, but to grow in the life of Christ day by day by day. We have opportunity as we finish Galatians in chapters 5 and 6 to really understand that the gospel has massive implications for our daily lives, like down to the hour and the minute. And so what I want us to think about this morning is this this picture of, of what it means to run with God and to run for God. We're going to see in this text, when we read it in just a moment, that Paul uses this imagery again. It's common to the New Testament where Paul's going to say things like this. In 1 Corinthians 9, he's going to say, I am trying to run, to please God with my life, and I am trying to run in such a way to obtain the prize. In Philippians 2, he'd say, we saw it a few weeks ago, I'm, I'm seeking to run so that my life, my ministry would not be in vain. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, some people think it's Paul, others would argue that it's not Paul. We can't know conclusively, but whoever wrote it is saying, I want you to run with endurance and joy this race that is set before you, fixing your eyes on Christ. And so now here again today, we're going to see Paul using this imagery of running, and he's saying, you're running well. Make sure that no one comes in and hinders you from this path that Christ has set out before you. And what we're going to see is there are are two errors on the path of freedom that we can slide into. Okay, so as we we think about what it means to run in the path of freedom, the exhortation I want to give you today is to run in your lane, all right? Run in your lane. Now, if you have watched the Olympics or if maybe you're a track and field athlete, okay, that wasn't me, okay? I need a ball in my hands to want to run, okay? It wasn't very fast, you know what I'm saying? And I just, that wasn't my thing, all right? But some of you, you're quick, you know, you have that endurance, you want to run. And so uh, if you watch the Olympics, maybe the 200-meter uh, dash sprint, okay, that's halfway around the track, you know that each runner starts off at the starting block, And the primary aim, okay, I'm no track coach again, but I would say that, you know, there there are probably three objectives, all right? Number one, you want to get a really good start off the starting blocks, right? Okay, I'm not going to bend down and demonstrate for you here, but, you know, I wouldn't know exactly what I was doing. When the gun fires, right, you want to get a nice start into your race, okay? That's objective one. Number two, you want to run as fast as you can, all right? It's pretty simple, right? And number three, you want to stay in your lane, right? Because if you step out as you're running as fast as you can, if you step and cross over the line on either side, you're going to be disqualified from finishing the race and winning the prize. And so Paul is going to tell the Galatians in chapter 5, look, run in your lane. Stay centered, grounded in the gospel because it's this gospel that sets us free. So let me read these 15 verses for us as we dive into Galatians chapter 5. This is what Paul writes. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul, again, is going to bring his arguments home in chapters 5 and 6. And in this passage, what we're finding here is he's saying to run in your lane. He's saying on the one side, you have this, this freedom that you are now freed from, which is the, the, the hindrance, the obstacle of legalism. Okay, we're going to talk about that. But then on the other side, the other danger, which is usually on the flip side of this understanding of grace, is not legalism, but licentiousness. And we're going to talk about that. So we're, we're now in Christ. We are free from both legalism and licentiousness and we are free then to run for freedom so that we can love one another. Okay, so that's the basic outline of where we're going today. And, and, and the, the main thought that I want you to see this morning is that the cross, okay, all of this is centered on the work of Christ and him crucified. The cross calls us to run free for God through a life of of love. Okay, so, so number one, what's the first encouragement for you this morning? Okay, number one, run in the scandalous shadow of the cross and be free from legalism. All right, run in the scandalous shadow of the cross and be free from legalism. Look back in verse one. We looked at this last week. It's a hinge verse, which means it goes with the previous section and the one that we're in today. Paul gives both a statement of truth and a command. Okay, so this is true for you if you're in Christ, and then he gives you a way to live it out in light of this reality. Okay, so, so he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. This is what is true for believers. Man, we are free in Christ. But then he says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you're free, then, then live free. Don't go back to being enslaved, imprisoned by trying to achieve your way to God through your own effort and works. 
Now, I want us to think about this concept of freedom because I think this is a struggle for us at times, okay? Part of this is cultural and part of this is theological, okay? The cultural part is I think as Americans, we often take our freedom for granted because we can basically do whatever we want whenever we want to do it, right? So we've never been oppressed. We've never been enslaved or imprisoned in a social realm. And so that makes it difficult for us to understand freedom. But then number two, I think that there is a theological you know, uh, truth that is hard for us to grasp. And that is we do not understand how desperate our plight is apart from the grace of God setting us free. So a lot of times we treat sin as this trivial thing that, oh, oops, my bad God, didn't mean to do that, hope you'll kind of wipe that out. We kind of sweep sin under the rug, we treat it with kind of, you know, uh, just, just this, this, this cavalier approach when we need to understand that sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And our sin brings us severe consequences. It says that we are enslaved to sin and imprisoned to it. This is what sin brings in our lives. And so it's not like a little kid that's getting grounded or put in time out just for a few moments. You know, this is not what sin does for us. It literally enslaves us. Our will is bound to our selfish desires apart from God's grace to not live for him, but to live for ourselves and do whatever we want to do. So if, if you really want to grasp what Paul's doing here, you need to picture yourself apart from God's grace with shackles on your hands and feet being bound, not being able to move. But this is what makes the gospel so beautiful. Jesus is the greatest liberator the world has ever known. Isaiah 61 verse 1, prophesying of the Christ, it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. You remember Jesus read this in Nazareth, in his hometown of Luke chapter 4. He says, hey, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to what? To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Jesus, it's in Jesus, through Jesus, that we are set free to live the life that God wants us to live. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Don't go back to a yoke of oppression and slavery. So Paul then is going to continue arguing with these false teachers who are espousing what we've been calling a Jesus plus theology. It's, yeah, Jesus is good, but you really need to do X, Y, and Z to be accepted by God. And so Paul, with the flurry of arguments, beginning in, in verse 2, running through verse 12, is going to kind of go toe-to-toe once again with these Judaizers, as we've called them, that are saying, hey, you really need to, to uh, do, do this to be approved by God. Okay, so just trek with me as we work through these verses, all right? These Judaizers were not simply um, 
diluting the gospel, okay? They were contaminating the gospel. They were changing the substance to where there was no gospel at all for in their message. You understand? So this is why Paul is going to say in very strong language in verse 2, look, I, Paul. I mean, he's getting personal here, right? He doesn't, he doesn't throw his name out there all the time, but he's saying, look, I, Paul, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So, so part of uh, belonging to uh, the, the, the Jewish uh, system and, 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 and tribe was for men to be circumcised. And so they were saying, look, yeah, it's good to trust in Christ, but you really need to also keep these laws that we have in Judaism to really be truly on the team, right? And so Paul says, look, if, if you're espousing to a Jesus plus theology, then you've just lost Christ. Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will not profit you anything. I mean, so think about to receive Christ is to receive everything, right? So, so Jesus plus nothing actually equals everything. We have it all when we have Christ. But to not have Christ is, is to lose it all. So if, if, if we do not have Christ, then we have no prophet, no true spiritual prophet, either in this life or in the life to come. And so we can see here, as we read Paul, and he's talking about this hope of righteousness. There is this looking forward to the future that's saying, one day you're going to stand before God. And I hope you all consider this this morning. We're all going to stand before God. And there is, there is um, a truth that will then get us in, welcome us into the presence of God that will profit us, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And that truth is a person, Jesus Christ. But if you try to add anything to Jesus, then you've just stepped outside of Christ being of advantage to you, of being of profit to you. And then he goes on and he, he ratchets up his argument in verse 3. He says, look, I, I say again to every man, if you accept circumcision, that you're obligated to keep the whole law. I mean, have you, have you reviewed the law lately? I mean, let's just, let's just start with the Ten Commandments. How about the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. All right, we're done. I mean, you just, you lost right there. We all have chased after, valued other things, created things more than the creator who is forever praised. And so this room is full of idolaters, okay? Like, if you don't like that, I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. We've all valued things, loved things, worshiped things more than God. I don't care if we're talking about relationships, money, a job, prestige, power, sex. You can fill in the blank with anything you want to throw out there. We have loved things more than we have loved God. So we just broke the first commandment and we're done. But if you wanted to try to keep all of these laws, Paul's saying, look, if you can't keep one law, then how are you going to keep the whole law? 
If you want to add laws to, to, to God's sufficient answer in Christ, then you better try to keep the whole law. So I know we have some students in here. Man, it's exam. I'm sorry to bring this up, okay? But it's exam season coming up, right? And so it's, you know, it's, it's nice if you can ace an exam, right? Okay, I've been there. I've done that like a couple times, you know what I'm saying? Um, so, so it's one thing to ace one exam, but try to ace every assignment for, the, for your whole life. It's impossible, right? Can't be done. So that's what Paul's going to say. Look, if you're trying to just earn your salvation through works righteousness, good luck because you have to keep the whole thing. And so then the conclusion in verse 4 is he's going to say, you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified, counted righteous, accepted in the sight of God. By the law, you have fallen away from grace. So, so Paul is saying, look, if you are trying to win God's acceptance through your own effort, you have just moved away from Christ. You have estranged yourself from Christ. You have cut yourself off from Christ. And you have fallen away from the realm of grace. What Paul is trying to communicate through this whole letter is that you can't have it both ways. You can't have Jesus and your effort. It's Jesus and his grace is everything. It's not our works that could ever save us. So then, to skip down to verse 7, Paul's going to talk about these false teachers. And he's, he's using this, as we said, this, this imagery of a race, running. He says, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Okay, so, so these false teachers are coming in. They're placing obstacles in the path of the Galatians. And he says, look, this is what their false teaching amounts to. They're, they're restricting you. They're holding you back. They're, they're hindering you from running in the freedom of the gospel. And so he says, look, verse 8 this is not from him who called you, okay? This is not from God. Their teaching is not from God. It's from man. And this teaching is dangerous. Just a little bit of this teaching will spread rapidly through the church. What he says in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so Paul then says, look, what's going to become of these false teachers is they're going to bear the penalty. And it seems like in verse 10, there is maybe one kind of ringleader among these false teachers who, are, who is his teaching this heresy in the church of Galatia. So he says, this one will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And Paul is so serious about the truth that he would say in verse 12, sarcastically, hey, look, uh, I wish you, those who unsettle you would just go ahead and emasculate themselves, okay? So if you need an explanation on that, you can just kind of look that up afterwards, all right? But, um, but, but basically what he's saying, if he's saying, like, if, you, if, if circumcision, if they're telling you to do that, I wish they just go the whole way. And, you know, it's, it's a sarcastic way of, like, saying they're, they're done, right? So, look, anything you hear from this stage is probably never going to be stronger than the Bible, all right? So this is, but, but, but think about what Paul is, is, is doing here. Not just what he's saying, but the heart behind it. Paul is so concerned with the truth of the gospel, 
because the glory of God is wrapped up in the gospel and the good of these believers to embrace it is also wrapped up in the gospel. So he's getting heated. He's angry at these false teachers because he wants the Galatians to experience the freedom that God wants to bring them. So in verse 11, we could, we could say this. Look back at verse 11. He says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, this word offense is the Greek word scandalon, okay? We could substitute the word scandal, okay? The scandal of the cross has been removed. And why is the cross a scandal? This is why. Because the cross tells us that it is not by any work of our own that we could merit our salvation. And that is an affront to our pride. God, I want to stand before you one day because I was good enough. I was a nice enough person. Didn't my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? And so the message of the cross, the message of grace is truly a scandalous message. The, the, the Jews, the Greeks, they stumbled over this, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross is foolishness, foolishness to those who are perishing, perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so I hope that this scandalous truth of the gospel is truly liberating for you, that you will embrace the scandal of the cross, that as you run, the cross is like a shadow. The scandalous shadow is pushing you to love and serve and worship God. The gospel is articulated for us in verses five and six. Look at, look at this. In contrast to the way that the, that the false teachers were saying, hey, here's where life is found. Paul's going to say, this is really the gospel. It is for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, Paul's going to say, it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And so what is faith? It is casting ourselves on who Christ is, on his work for us, saying, Jesus, your work is enough. And as the Spirit enables us to place our faith in Christ, then God changes us from the inside out. We are a new creation we're actually in the race now. And then this faith begins to produce a love for God and a love for one another. So I hope we've hit this plenty of times through the book of Galatians, but I hope you understand now what legalism is, okay? I know this is kind of a, a term that we don't toss around every day in our culture, okay? But legalism, C.J. Mahaney says, is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through my obedience to God. All right, you might want to write that down. That's really helpful. It's seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through our obedience. 
We could simplify this definition. If you just want a three-word definition of legalism, it is acceptance through performance. So God will accept me if I fulfill all of his commands. Or, or for Christians, we have legalistic hearts that slip back into this mindset where we say, you know what, man, if I read my Bible every day this week, then God must love me more. He must be more pleased with me. I must be more acceptable to him. Man, I haven't shared the gospel in a couple of months. Man, does Jesus, like, does he love me the same as he loved me two months ago when I was really active in sharing my faith? And so we, we begin to base our acceptance by God on our performance for God. But the gospel frees us from this. Legalism says it's Jesus plus. The gospel says it's Jesus plus absolutely nothing. And so Paul, in the very strongest terms, as we have seen in these first 12 verses, he tries to lay the death blow to legalism amongst the Galatians. But then, as we talked about, it's not only running free from legalism, on the one hand, but it's also running free from licentiousness on the other. And we see this at the beginning of verse 13. Paul goes on to say, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Um, hearkening back to verse one, you were called to freedom, brothers, only, now here's another command, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. All right? So, so legalism says, I must work to earn forgiveness and grace before God. But licentiousness says, because God has forgiven me and given me his grace, I can live however I want to live. I know this is a, a, a big word, okay? Licentiousness. But, but, but I hope you see what, what Paul is getting at here in verse 13, all right? He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So have you, have you ever approached God like this and his grace? You understand that the cross has freed you, forgiven you for all of your sin, past, present, and future. It's all paid for by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so I, I meet people all the time who don't understand grace, and they say, well, it, it can't only be by grace your salvation, because if it were, then doesn't that mean I could just do whatever I want to do? Man, grace is too good to be true. We talked about this. If we are not preaching the gospel in such a way that people say it's too good to be true, then we're not really preaching the gospel. Some people would say, man, if, if grace abounds, then we can, we can do what we want to do. But that is showing that we really don't understand the gospel. When Paul is talking about the flesh, he's talking about our former life apart from God's grace. The, the part of us that, that still wants to chase after our sinful desires, our selfish desires. And so what we can do sometimes is, is we can think, man, because God's grace is, is, is with us, is for us, is, is ours, then we have the freedom. Just like, mm, I'll slip up just a little bit, just this one time. God will, for, God will forgive me, right? I mean, if you don't think this way, chances are you live your life this way from time to time. 
We think that grace is a license to sin, okay? You know that to have a driver's license means you have the freedom, the permission to get on the road and to drive where it is you want to go. Now, this happens to be the driver's license of a, of a young lady in our church named Rachel Smith, Miss Rachel Smith, okay? Now, she is a citizen of the wonderful country of, of England, okay? She's a Brit. And so now she has the freedom to not only drive on, let's see, the left side of the road in the, in the jolly old UK, all right, but, but now she can also drive on the right side of the road in, in the US of A, right? So, so Rachel has this freedom, all right? I'm not going not gonna to lose this for you, all right? Now, now, can you imagine if Rachel, with this newfound freedom, says, you know what? I'm going to take Dave's Ferrari out. Dave doesn't have a Ferrari, but it'd be cool if he did. Um, I'm going to take Dave's Ferrari out. I'm just going to drive 100, you know, through my neighborhood. I'm going to run all the stop signs. I'm going to plow through all the stop lights. When that construction zone comes up, man, I think I can just weave right through those and just kind of have a good time here. I mean, is, is Rachel going to do that just because she has the license to do it? I hope not, right? I hope not. So, so grace doesn't free us up to live however we want to live and fulfill our selfish desires. Grace frees us up to love and serve God with our lives. I mean, if we are thinking, hey, you know what, man, Jesus, you've forgiven me. I can kind of say this, do that, um, jump into this particular sin, this old way of life. We are thinking like a fool. Proverbs 26.11 paints a very vivid picture of what this kind of mindset is like. It says that like a dog returns to his vomit, so is a fool who repeats his folly. This is what it's like to be freed from sin and to willingly go back into our old ways of life. It's like returning to vomit. That which is, is absolutely sick. I mean, this is the picture that, that the Bible gives us. And so we need to understand, be reacquainted with this doctrine of the holiness of God. God is perfectly holy in and of himself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6. And what does 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says? It says, um, but just as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. This is our privilege now, to live a life as those made in the image of God, this image of God renewed, recreated in us through Christ. Now we have the joy, the privilege of imaging forth who God is with the way that we live our life. Augustine got this, the, 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 the fourth century, fourth, fifth century uh, theologian, one of the greatest theologians who's ever lived, I think, on the planet, St. Augustine, as some call him. You see, he lived, most people don't know, Augustine lived a very uh, immoral life before he came to Christ. He was a fornicator. He was a playboy. He had many lovers before he was saved by God's grace and set apart for God's grace. 
And so Augustine told the story that one day after he had come to Christ, he was walking through the city. And one of his old lovers spotted him. And so she tries to kind of catch his attention. You know, he tries, she tries to seduce him. And, and, and so he's just, you know, he kind of sees her out of the corner of his eye, but he just keeps walking the path, resisting temptation. And so she gets a little more bold. She gets a little more forward with him. And she tries to really put herself out there and flaunt herself to Augustine. And he keeps walking forward until finally she jumps in front of him. And she says, Augustine, it's me. It's me. To which Augustine replies, yes, but it's not me. This is the power of the gospel. What counts is a new creation to now where we have desires to live for God, to glorify God with our life, to say no to ungodliness and sin. Let's not be a church that winks at sin. Let's be a church that is so passionately in love with God for the joy that is set before us, Christ being our greatest treasure. We would say no to that and say yes to him. Christ has freed us from legalism. Christ has freed us from licentiousness so that he might free us to love. Verse 13, once again. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we have been set free that we might love God. We have been set free. The, the third encouragement for us today is to run in the scandalous shadow of the cross and be free for loving one another. This is, this is why Jesus has loosened the chains that once bound us so that we might live for him, love him, and love our neighbor as ourselves. These are the two greatest commandments, Right? And you might be surprised, Paul says in verse 14, well, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What about the first and greatest commandment, Paul? Like, did you forget about that? Deuteronomy 6, Jesus, what he said in Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God, that's the first and greatest commandment. But I think Paul understands that, number one, the law was given by God. It's an expression of his character. Every time we fulfill any one of the commands of God, we are showing that we love God. And number two, we can't truly love our neighbor unless we've experienced the love of Christ and are loving him in return. You see, love begets love. You got that? Love gives birth to love. So when we experience the love of God in Christ, then we now have a heart that wants to love him in return and love one another. Jesus says in John 13, Excuse me, verse, chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. 
The greatest expression of love the world has ever known. Here is love, deep as the ocean, right? We sang of it today. No love is higher. No love is wider. No love is deeper. No love is truer. No love is like your love, O Lord. And this love has been demonstrated to us in the cross of Christ, him laying down his life on our behalf. And so it's when we see the cross, when we're running in the scandalous shadow of the cross, that now we are freed up to love him in return and to love one another. The very verse before, verse 13 in chapter 15 is verse 12, which says, this is my commandment that you love one another, how Jesus, as I have loved you. Does that kind of rock your world a bit? The love that we have received, this sacrificial, selfless how can we describe it? Indescribable. We'll just put that word on the adjective. Indescribable love that we're to take that love and display it to one another. Paul would say, I believe, that the fulfilling of this command should start right here in this church. He says, through love, serve one another. And so as a, as a pastor, I'm just constantly trying to kind of evaluate the health of our church, okay? A lot of times we reduce the health of a church to how many seats we put out on Sunday morning, okay? Yeah, sure, we want more people to come. That could be a sign of health. It may not be. There are huge churches, mega churches with false teachers that people come in, have their ears tickled, and they're no probably church at all. So it's not just about seats and how many people come. It's about the quality of our love for one another. So let me ask you, this weekend, when you got ready to come to church, were you excited to say, you know what, man, I get to see Ryan. I get to see Marcus. I get to see Winlong and Shade Lynn. I get to see my boy Becker, man. I'm excited to be with the people of God. I hope that was your heart this weekend. I, hope, I, I believe that is true of this church. Do we get excited about being together and we get excited about serving one another with one another and for the good of our city? So as we think about this command to, to through love, serve one another, I actually am very encouraged with where we are as a church. All the time as a church planter, you know, we're a new church here in Medford, and one of, the, one of the uncertainties of a church plant is where you meet, because we don't own our own building, all right? So, so we all understand, just two months ago, we moved here into the Boys and Girls Club, and I'm constantly being asked from friends and family and church planting strategists, you know, hey, how did the move go? How's the Boys and Girls Club going? And I have to just say over and over again, it's going really well. It's going great. And why is that? It's because over 50 people showed up the weekend before to get trained on how to serve and set this place up. I was blown away, and I knew at that point we were set. You feel me on that? People get here an hour early. They stay 45 minutes after the service so that we can pull this thing off. So it's serving one another, serving together. And it's not just serving in internally, but it's serving with one another for the common good of our city. Yesterday, once again, I'm kind of back in the back. You know, John's leading and he's, you know, 
giving instructions off of what Abby and Jen and our team had set up. And so I'm just kind of counting that over 40 people show up to distribute 62 Thanksgiving meals to our city. So here is a, a picture of that that you can see here. We stuffed all of these bags and we had turkeys to go with them. And we went around to families in need in our city and displayed the love of Christ. Man, I am encouraged by what God is doing to motivate us in light of who he is to love and serve one another. There are so many ways we can do this. I mean, let me just throw a few ideas out there. This is the holiday season. It's a great time to consider how we can, through love, serve one another. Sometimes the best way you can serve someone is just to simply spend some time with them. And and, and I want to kind of elevate the, 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 the encouragement here, all right? Jesus in the Gospels hangs out with people that the religious leaders didn't think he should be hanging out with. So when you, when you consider who to spend your time with, who to invite out to lunch, to who to maybe have over for Thanksgiving dinner or, or go out, you know, for some holiday party, I think Jesus would probably invite the people that no one else would invite. And he would spend time with the people that no one else wants to spend time with. And so I want you to consider that, that just the simple act of spending time with someone can mean the world to them. It is how we emulate Christ who did not look to his own interests but looked to our interests by taking on our flesh, becoming like us so that he could live a perfect life, die in our place and ultimately rise again. And so we can show love by putting others ahead of ourselves. We can, we can give by going the extra mile through practical, meeting practical needs of those around us. Perhaps it starts in your family. Perhaps it starts with a need in your community group or your church. You know someone is hurting, then you can give them a call. You know someone has a physical, tangible need. You can go and meet that need by sacrificing of your time and energy and resources. How about praying for them? Man, we want to be a praying church. It's, it's, it's an act of service and love to take the time to pray for someone who's hurting, who needs God's grace. And as we looked at last week, let me just remind us, what about, what about sharing the gospel with people? I would pose to you that on this side of eternity, there's no greater way we could serve someone than to tell them the truth of the gospel about Jesus who can set them free. So we looked at this picture last week of of how God has placed us into different relational networks. We have friends, we have family, we have coworkers, we have neighbors. I mean, I hope to hear of opportunities we've already taken advantage of to, to speak the words of Christ, even as we seek to display the love of Christ to people. Man, reach out, invite people to our Christmas party coming up. Invite people on Bring Sunday. Let them know what Christmas is really all about. And I'm not saying in some kind of cheesy way, all right? Like Jesus is the reason for the season. I'm not hating on you if you have that on your bumper sticker on your car. I'm just saying that there's a way, right? Okay? Don't, don't be mad at me. You got that. But there's a way to talk about the gospel in natural ways to those who need to hear. So Martin Luther in his 
work, the freedom of a Christian, he says this, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. So in Christ, we have the freedom now. We're not bound by any other person. Jesus alone is our Lord, and whatever he says goes, so we're free to love and obey him, not restricted by what any other person would say ultimately. And at the same time, we are, because of this love, we are the servant of all people, bound to them to love and to give ourselves away for the sake of others. So I hope as a church, we can adopt this kind of mindset that Christ died to free us from achieving our way to God, also from an unholy life so that we might run with him. And here's what happens when we get this, all right? And I love this. Jesus in that same gospel of John, verse 35 of chapter 13, what does he say? He says, by this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as we engage as a church, as we seek to serve one another as a church, we are actually giving an argument for the validity of the good news. That as people see us sacrificing time for one another, sacrificing resources for one another, giving ourselves away, dying to ourselves that others might have life, then they're going to have to take notice. And, and oh, by the way, this is what happened yesterday. We were setting up out here these tables, and a lady named, uh, I'll save her name. She's probably going to come here to Redemption Hill sometime soon by faith, all right? So I'll just, I'll just leave her name flat, all right? But, but a lady came up. She said, what are you doing? Can I, can I donate? Man, this is amazing. This is awesome. Another lady came up. They were going into the post office. My mom wants me to come over and ask what's going on. Oh, you're a church? Man, I would love to be a part of a church like this. When we start loving others, serving others, it necessarily will grab the attention of our community and they will be brought into the knowledge of who Jesus is and the difference that he has made in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel that sets us free. Father, we ask that you would help us to run with you, to run freely with you, not restricted by anything, but simply filled with your grace, filled with your spirit, that we might live a life of, of great resolve to love you and to love one another. Lord, help us to live out the simplicity of what it looks like to fulfill the law simply through loving one another. God, it's by your grace that this will happen, and we look forward to seeing how you'll do this. And then through us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.